There was a pastor who saw this little girl standing outside of preschool, Sunday school classroom. Uh, it was in between services and Sunday school and worship, and she was waiting for her parents to come get her, so to take her to big church. And the pastor noticed that uh, she was holding this big storybook under her arm that had the title Jonah and the Whale. And so he was feeling a little mischievous, so he knelt beside the girl and he asked, well, what's that you got in your hand? And she said, well, this is my storybook about Jonah and the Whale. And he, he said, well, he's, well, tell me something, he continued, uh, do you believe that story about Jonah and the whale? And she's like, well, yeah, of course I believe it. And so he asked further, he's like, you can really believe a man can be swallowed up by a big whale, stay inside him all that time, and then come out okay? And she's like, yes, this story is in the Bible, and we talk about it in Sunday school today. So then, I don't know why, but he keeps going. Um, but he said, well, can you prove to me this story is true? And she thought about it for a moment and said, well, you know what? When I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. And finally, the pastor asked, well, what if, what if Jonah's not in heaven? And she put her hands on her hips and certainly declared, then you can ask him. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> eh. This is why you don't mess with kids, man. <laughs> like, they'll tell you. <laughs> Last week, we started this series going through the short Old Testament book of Jonah. We're taking on a chapter a week for four weeks. And we met the prophet Jonah, who was called by God to go to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh last week, where he would preach against them because they were doing some pretty awful, pretty wicked things instead of following God's direction. But instead of going there, Jonah decided, I'm going to run away from what the Lord's calling me to do. And he tries to take a ship to the port city of Tarshish. And uh, this is about as far as you could go in the known world, away from where he was supposed to be headed. So God sent this storm. He hurled the storm at the ship. And once the sailors kind of figured out that Jonah was the reason that they were in danger, they asked him what to do. And so he replied, well, throw me overboard, and the storm would end. And eventually, they, they tried to do another thing, but eventually they did, like Jonah said, and the storm was immediately calmed. These men then worshiped the Lord, and then Jonah, well, let's see where we left Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17 of the book of Jonah, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's where we leave Jonah, in the belly of a huge fish. And I know what you're thinking, best Mother's Day sermon ever. <laughs> this is a passage a lot of people have struggled with through the years, right? Especially in recent times. Is the fish a fish or is it a whale? Is it uh, real or is it just an allegory? Did Jonah really stay alive inside of a fish for three days and three nights, or did he just stay at a hotel that was called the fish? <laughs> that is an actual theory that I read this week. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> um, and we're not going to belabor this, but to answer some of these questions, I, I did a word study on the Hebrew, and the word is translated mainly as fish. Uh, it's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 when God filled the sea with fish. The real tricky question comes with the next ones. Is the fish real or is it just an allegory? And how could Jonah survive in the fish for three days and three nights? Now, as I was doing research on this, I came across some reports from history of people who were swallowed by whales and survived. But those are disputed. 
What we tend to look overlook when we are talking about this, though, is we try and look for natural ways that this happens, right? This is not a natural thing that had, was going on. Um, it is a miracle. It is God acting in the world. The scripture says that God provided the fish to swallow Jonah, so surely God could work it out that Jonah would be able to survive for three days and three nights. As far as an allegory, well, the author of the book of Jonah does not really treat it like an allegory. Uh, Tim Keller writes in his book on Jonah, he says, a fiction writer ordinarily adds supernatural elements in order to create excitement or spectacle and to capture reader attention. But this writer doesn't capitalize on the event at all in that way. The fish is mentioned only in two brief verses, and there are no descriptive details. It's reported more as a simple fact of what happened. So Keller's point is that we really shouldn't be distracted by the fish. So let's not be distracted by the fish. Let's look more closely at uh, today at what Jonah is praying at some point during those three days and three nights. And so we start in Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where it says, From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. One of my favorite Christmas movies is It's a Wonderful Life. Such a great movie. Uh, builds the story of George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, uh, so well. Like You see his life from childhood uh, to uh, when he was planning on leaving for college to ending up running the building and loan uh, after his father passes away. And all through the film, what you see is George trying to get away from his hometown of Bedford Falls, right? But something keeps happening that keeps him there. Um, and, and he did have a happy life with a, a beautiful wife and kids, but when his absent-minded uncle loses $8,000, George realizes his building and loan could be caught in a scandal, and that drives him to the brink, and he reaches his uh, absolute lowest point, and he goes to a bridge to commit suicide. And it's here that he prays this prayer. He says, Dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way, God. George had his back against the wall, and he really had no other place to turn except to God. And if you've seen the movie, of course, you know that God answers that prayer. Well, Jonah is in pretty dire straits as well, right? He's been thrown overboard into the sea to stop the storm that's battering the ship that he was in. And it seemed like Jonah wanted to die to get away from what God was calling him to do, but maybe not completely. He is swallowed by the fish, and now he cries out to the Lord for rescue. Jonah starts his prayer by saying, In my distress I called to the Lord. Now, that's something that we see written in a few different psalms. For example, Psalm 18.6 says, In my distress I called to the Lord, I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. We have Psalm 118, verse 5. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. And then Psalm 120, verse 1 says, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Now, some have tried to say that the author of Jonah was using psalms to uh, kind of just fluff out this prayer a little bit, but I'm not sure that's really the case. What I think is happening is that Jonah is using the Psalms really to guide his prayers. 
I can imagine that your mind may not be working quite right as you were in the belly of a fish at sea. Like, it's got to be dark, can't be really comfortable, and uh, as you pray, you may not be having the best thoughts for prayers. But Jonah, who is a prophet of the Lord, could very likely have memorized different psalms, and then he used them as his prayers. Bible reading plan that I use, as the Bible Project reading plan, they do, they do this very thing. Every day there's a reading from the Psalms, and what they tell you to do, or at least what they did originally, was to pray them as your own personal prayers. Like, reword it if you have to, but keep the, the essence of the, the Psalm the same. And, and that's one of the things that the Psalms are for. They are prayers. They are songs and praises and mores, and so we should use them as that. Well, Jonah describes where he is, as uh, deep in the realm of the dead, or Sheol, where he's calling for help. Sheol is the Hebrew understanding of the afterlife. The way the ancient Hebrews viewed the world would be a little bit different from how we would view it. Here's a picture of the ancient Hebrew concept of the universe. And so in it, you can see how below the land, below the earth, there is a great deep where the foundations of the earth sit. Inside of that is Sheol. It's that black splotch um, in the middle there. Um, And that is the realm of the dead in Hebrew understanding. Now, most scholars that I read believe that Jonah didn't think that he was actually in Sheol, but more on his way to that place. So he starts with this, really kind of a summary of his prayer that he is crying out from the depths as he is hard-pressed. But um, it's a summary of the prayer that's to come, and we'll get into a little bit more. But the first start is this. It is a prayer of personal crisis. It's a prayer of personal crisis. Jonah 2, verse 3 says, You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. I spoke last week about how I had run away from the Lord myself when I was in college. I was in an astronomy class, and we were going through this probability equation of the probability of other life-sustaining planets in the universe outside of our own Earth. And for some reason, when the professor told me his answer, told us his answer to the equation, it made me say to myself, you know, there is no way that there could be a God. And from that point on, I lived that way. Well, fast forward four years, I was traveling for my job, and I was in this hotel in a town called Gretna, Louisiana, which is just on the other side of the Mississippi River from New Orleans. I was trying to go to sleep. I was listening to some music, but for some weird reason, I was thinking about death and dying and what that would be like. And I thought to myself, well, it wouldn't be too bad because once I was dead, I wouldn't exist anymore, so I wouldn't have to worry about it. You know, if you took the atheism all the way to its point. And that thought scared me like a lot, a lot, Um, like to the point where I still don't, I can't listen to that song that I was listening to at that time, 
I mean, I can, but it's, I don't like it. Um, I, was, <laughs> I was fearing with a deep fear, like the sailors from last week we were talking about. And I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. All of a sudden, the things that were important in life didn't really seem all that important. Because I'd kind of come to the end of myself. And I had a fear of dying, but I had a fear, from that fear, I didn't really want to, I mean, I wanted to live because I was afraid of dying, but I didn't want to actually do things, right? Which is tough when you're flying all the time. Um, but it was, it was there where I started to seek out God and started to turn back to him. Jonah's described throughout these two chapters as going down. He goes down to the port city of Joppa. He goes down into the bowels of the ship where he fell into that deep sleep. And now he's going down into the depths toward the realm of the dead. Jonah doesn't place blame on the sailors who threw him overboard. No, he, he gives God credit. He says that God hurled him into the depths and God's waves were sweeping over him. Jonah recognizes the sovereignty of the Lord throughout all of this process. He knew the storm that they were caught in came from God. He knew that the actions of the sailors were really God working. The fish that he was in the belly of, keeping him alive, also came from God. Sometimes God's going to discipline us for doing things against what he knows is best. The author of Hebrews talks about it like this in Hebrews 12, verse 5. He says, Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that encourages you, or that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in our holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Jonah didn't follow God's directions to go and preach to the Ninevites, and God disciplined him for it. It's not that God doesn't love Jonah because he does. Sometimes we go through things that are tough, and, and it could be because we're being disciplined for it. It's not because God hates us. That's not why he's doing it. But it is because he loves us. He knows what's best for us. But how often do we don't want to listen to that? Well, at this point, Jonah had everything stripped away from him, and he came to a point which seemed hopeless. He was thrown overboard. The waves swept over him. The deep surrounded him. The seaweed wrapped around his head. The earth barred him in forever. Jonah believed that God had banished him from his sight, and yet he had not because there was a divine rescue coming. On May 29, 1939, there was a submarine named the Squalus, which was a $5 million vessel and sank off Portsmouth, New Hampshire. 
There's this new, newly developed rescue vehicle named the McCann Rescue Bell, and it was used for the first time ever in this. This bell-shaped valve let rescuers reach and find 33 of the men who were trapped inside the submarine who were still alive. And when they reached the sunken ship, they tapped on the metal of the hole in an effort to find the sailors using Morse code. And the imprisoned men, they answered by tapping as well, and they asked in Morse code, is there any hope? There was hope for their submariners, just like there was hope for Jonah. Verse 6, But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Jonah's going down, deeper and deeper, away from the Lord, or so he thought. There's no way that God would hear my prayer, he must have believed. For I'm too far gone. I ran away from my calling. I ran away from my Lord. But like we saw last week, you can't outrun God. We run and we run. We sin. We do the things that our desires are driving us to. Many times they're away from what the Lord would have us do, away from what is best. Jonah ran. He gets thrown overboard in the sea. The darkness closes in on him. And then, just as he believes that there's no hope, God shows up. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. As his life is drifting away, it's like Jonah comes to his senses. He says, I remembered you, Lord. And he prayed for deliverance. He wanted to return to God. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a parable that we call the parable of the lost or the prodigal son. In that story, a man had two sons, and the younger tells his father that he wants his share of the estate, which is just basically saying that he wants to live on his own and that he wants his dad to die because that's the only way that he could have the money. So the father divides the property, and the son goes off to live in a distant land where he squanders the wealth through wild living. And then a famine hits the country where he lived, and he ends up losing all of his money, of course, and has to find work, and he he finds work with a citizen of the country, working with pigs, which would have been unthinkable for a Hebrew. He's very hungry, wanting even what the pigs were eating. And then Jesus says that he came to his senses, and he thought, well, I can just go home and live as a servant for my father. And he's got this speech prepared, and he gets up, and he goes home. And when he gets there, his father sees him from a long way off, and he's still filled with compassion for him, and he runs to his son and embraces him. And the son tries to get the speech out, but he doesn't get anywhere near finishing it before the father tells his servants to put the best robe on him. He restores him to the family, and he sets up a party to celebrate that his son had returned. And he says, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's Jonah as well. He came to his senses. He remembered God, and God answered his prayer to bring him up from the depths. Even in the deepest darkness of our lives, God is with us. In the last part of the message, Jonah gives a vow of praise. He gives a vow of praise in this prayer. Verse 8 says that those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. 
I will say salvation comes from the Lord. There's this strange plant in Australia that's kind of like a fern, kind of looks like a clover, though. It's called nardu, N-A-R-D-O-O. And natives eat the seed when they can't find other food. But one property of it is that it, it's satisfied. It, it gives you this pleasant feeling of comfort, but it gives you absolutely zero nourishment. There was a party of explorers crossing the central desert, which ran out of food. And their, their leader, named Captain King, he recommended Nardu because he knew that the natives ate it, but he didn't know about it. And day after day, they fed on it. And at first, they felt satisfied, but soon their strength started to fail. And finally, it ended up killing them. They wasted away. They lay down. They died of starvation. There's one survivor who was found who could tell the story of what had happened. When we put our trust in things that seem like they satisfy but don't actually produce any nourishment, that's really idolatry. In the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is that the Israelites would not make any image or statue of a god to worship. Jonah talks about idols being worthless. There can be no physical object that can be a representation of the true God. By worshiping idols, you turn from God's love. Nowadays, idol worship doesn't necessarily come with a little statue or something like that, but we tend to worship things. Kyle Eidelman, the pastor at South, uh, Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, wrote a book called Gods at War, and in that book, he lists modern idols, things like food and sex and entertainment, success, money, achievement, romance, family, self. Each of these can turn you away from God's love for you if that's what you're focused on. We turn to the things that we believe can save us. Well, if only we had more money, only we had more financial security. If only we had sexual pleasure or the right partner. If only we had the perfect family, whatever it is. Everything would be okay. Life would be perfect. How many times, though, do we see people try and, and go their own way, lean on these things, only to figure out that none of these things ultimately matter? We chase after them, but as we do, we abandon our Lord. May we be like Jonah, who, after being brought low, turns back to, to the Lord. He says that he, with shouts of praise, will sacrifice to the Lord. He will do what the Lord has required of him. And he will say, salvation comes from the Lord. You can try and go your own way. You can follow your idols. Ultimately, it's not going to work out for you because it's not God's will. Or you can submit yourself to the Lord because salvation comes only from him. Understand he is sovereign and live your life, live your life in light of that fact. Try and go your own way. If you, if you do that, you know, I just want you to know, if you, if you try and go your own way, if you live and reject you know, this warning, the warning of the Scripture, it doesn't work out for the best because it's not going to. I pray at some point you'll be like the prodigal son and come to your senses and come home to Jesus. I promise I'm not going to be sitting here waiting to tell you I told you so. Didn't you listen to that sermon? Because I want to be more like my Father in heaven who's just happy you're home.
Dwight Moody talks about the idea of repentance and how people have a false idea of what repentance is. He writes that they think God is going to make them repent. He said, uh, he was once talking to a man on the subject, and he summed up his whole argument saying, well, Moody, it's never struck me yet. He was like, what's never struck you? He replied, well, some people it strikes, and some it doesn't. There's a good deal of interest in our town a few years ago, and some of my neighbors were converted, but it didn't strike me. So the man thought that repentance was coming down someday to strike him like lightning. Another man said he expected some sensation like cold chills down his back. But repentance isn't feeling. It's turning away from sin to God. One of the best definitions that Moody talks about was given by a soldier. Someone asked him how he was converted, and he said, Well, the Lord said to me, Halt, attention, right about face, march. And that was all there was to it. Jonah's like a lot of us, right? Running from God at one time, but then discovering himself to be in a very hopeless situation. And our only hope is found in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we have to come to the end of ourselves so that we can see our need for a Savior because we can't save ourselves. And so we recognize our need, we repent. We turn away from the things that are going to harm us, the sins that we commit. We turn away from the things that are driving us away from the Lord. And we turn toward God because he loves us and he sent his son to save us. If you need to turn away from your sin, turn toward Jesus. I invite you to do that today. Because salvation comes from the Lord through Jesus Christ who died on a cross to take the punishment for those sins so that you might live in a restored relationship with God for eternity. And I'd love to talk with you about that decision. Maybe you're here today, though, and and you're kind of stuck where you're at. You kind of feel like Jonah, that you're just going deeper and deeper. And maybe you just need prayer, and we'd love to pray for you as well whether it be me or any of the elders, we're what we're, you are always welcome to come up to us and we will pray for you. Jonah tried to run, right? But he found out you can't outrun God. And even in the deepest darkness, in the depths of his despair, don't be afraid because God is still with you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you are with us, that you love us. Sometimes you are disciplining us because we are turning away from you. But we know that you will be right there when we turn back. That doesn't mean that we we choose to turn away or, or that we try to uh, abuse your grace, Lord, but help us to uh, help us to not do that. Help us to come home to you. Help us to come to our senses, to remember you, Lord, like Jonah did. Father, we uh, come to the time where we do remember the sacrifice of your son who you sent to save us.
we take the time to remember the cup of the new covenant, the blood that was spilled. We take the time to remember the bread, which was the body broken for us. I just pray that each of us would take this time to just honor the sacrifice that was made, but also remember that it didn't stop at the cross, that three days later Jesus rose again. Father, we love you, and we just thank you so much for what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.